Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lay Foam. I'm your co-host, Richard Lay, and here with me, as usual, Kevin, Patrick, and Tyler. And in this episode, we actually have a very special guest here to grace us with her presence, Ashley. Hello. <laughs> hey, Ashley. Um, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Um, you were actually brought here... Um, because Patrick suggested for you to come for this episode. Oh my gosh, thanks, Patrick. Yes, and I would have felt bad if it was just four guys on the podcast, but also, Ashley, we've been in classes together. You're a brilliant art director and uh, all-around great crewmate. Thanks, I feel like one of the bros. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No, I agree. Um, I think you have a very particular eye when it comes to film production, and design, and I think that you're going to bring us a very, you know, specific perspective on what we're going to talk about later. So, I'm excited. Yeah, totally. I'm excited too. Um, so today, I actually want to talk about first and last. Is everyone ready for first and last? It's going to be a question I'm going to bring to you guys. So I'm going to ask, what's everyone's uh, first movie theater experience, and what movie? was it and actually since you're our special guest i would like to ask you what 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 was your first movie theater experience yeah so this is like super embarrassing but my first movie theater experience that i actually like fully remember is going to be the rugrats uh thornberry crossover film um (laughs) and i specifically remember that one because my mom dressed me up as eliza thornberry had the freckles and the pigtails and uh (laughs) Yeah, I saw my elementary school crush there, and I was uh, I just kind of wanted to die. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you have a photo of this? I don't, thank God. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Dang, so you made it cool to, like, cosplay at the movie theaters before everyone else did it. Yeah, cool before anybody else did it, you know? <laughs> and that was, like, you know, before all the crossovers and stuff with, like, all those cartoons, so... Dang. That's yeah. different. <laughs> All right, so Ashley, what was the last movie you saw? Um, Okay, so the last movie I saw was Ghostbusters, um, and I watched that when Tower Theater reopened up during the coronavirus thing that we're still in. Coronavirus? Um, What's that? Yeah, I don't know. It's like this terrible, awful thing that just ruins lives. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I just desperately wanted to go to the movie theaters, so I was just like... Ghostbusters, and I missed the showing for Beetlejuice, so Ghostbusters was, like, the option that I had. (laughs) You you just took what you had? Exactly. (laughs) I had two options. So, um, how was, like, the procedures over there? Like, how did they handle the seating and, like... Yeah, so, um, basically, they had, like, it was, like, every other row was, like, blocked off. So, and, like, you could only, like, take one row, and it was, like, really empty, so I, like, literally had a row to myself, which is nice. Sweet. You want me? To- uh, Tyler, yeah. Um, what's, what, what was the first, like, movie experience or movie theater experience, like, the earliest you can remember? Um, okay, yeah. So, I, first movie I saw, or first theater movie I saw in theaters was Fifth Element. Ooh. But I don't, I have no memory of it. But this is what my dad tells me. <laughs> and, but I think the first movie I can remember seeing in theaters is uh, uh, The Phantom Menace, Star Wars. Oh. At Sac State, too, actually, when my parents were going there. What? 
Pirates. Yeah, like I remember, like I just I can only remember like the crawl, like the opening crawl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then last movie I saw, what did I see? I saw a movie same thing like once like theaters reopened. I think I, I saw Tenet. That's what I watched. Oh, Christopher wow. Nolan. I wanted to see that actually. Was it good or? It was all right. It was okay. The sound editing was terrible. <laughs> really? Seriously, you couldn't hear like half the dialogue. And I like looked up, looked it up, and like that's what everyone said. Like, it was like bad. Like you literally could not hear yeah. certain people talking in certain scenes. Heard, it was uh, so bad that like it had to be deliberate. There was no way they like messed that up. Yeah, I heard uh, Christopher Nolan when he received the criticism for all the the sound editing. He was he was just. He, I don't think he really took the criticism that well. He was like, "Well, this is what that's what we did." So. That's that. <laughs> I like John David Washington though. He was cool. Okay. Pat? Oh, for me, uh damn. I honestly can't remember the film we watched, but I distinctly remember my dad coming and picking me and my brother up and then he took us to the local liquor store and then we walked to the local theater and then my dad snuck all this candy in for us. <laughs> little sodas in his pocket and then yeah we felt like we were getting one over on the theater and i think we showed up like 30 minutes early just to pick our seats and i still try to keep that tradition going where i'll go to the liquor store and buy candy and then show up way too early and get my good seat did you ever show up like super early to go uh hit the heart hit the arcade oh. like i like my, me and my dad used to do that all the time too like go play some uh Time crisis before. Oh yeah, dance, <laughs> dance, dance revolution. I've always wanted to be the type of person that goes to an, ar- an arcade just for the movie, yeah. but my parents would never give me money at <laughs> all. They'd be like, "No, we're here to see the movie. We're gonna watch the movie." You no. Would, no they, would they get you snacks or anything like that? Popcorn. Oh my! <laughs> see, like, you, would you have skipped out on the popcorn at the opportunity of being able to play like a game at the arcade? No. <laughs> <laughs> I I, just, I love movie popcorn. I feel like it's just like a totally like different How? experience than like at home popcorn. You only get it there. How do you guys eat your candy in a theater? Do you eat it all like in the previews, or do you like try and make it last through the whole movie? Oh, I just go ham. It's a constant <laughs> battle for me every time. I'm like, make it last till like an hour. In, I try to open least. it early so it was not a distraction, and just like, <laughs> yeah. like, like this fucking guy. <laughs> I remember this one time I was at a movie. Like I, I like purposely like sought out the seat where nobody else was gonna sit, and then like five minutes before the movie started. Uh, this one guy and his, and his wife came in, and the guy sat like right next to me, and he just had a full plate of nachos, <laughs> and, and like half, like he he like made them last too. That's a power and, move. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Through the entire movie. <laughs> also, a courtesy seat is a thing. Like you should right? leave a space. It's like this is society. Come on. <laughs> next to me if there's like an open seat right there yeah i've been i've been social distancing in movie theaters long before corona oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, kevin wait did we hear wait, your movie? Uh, oh wait Patrick, sorry pat you didn't finish last movie that you saw in theaters oh i was lucky enough to i think while we were having cases of the virus i went and saw portrait of a lady on fire yo yes oh, nice. yes okay. Are you, are you trying to one-up all of us by seeing the best movie? Uh, yeah, it was nothing, you know. I just kind of... sun was in my eyes, but I still somehow watched it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, Kevin, first movie? 
Uh, the first movie I saw was a uh, Phantom Menace as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah, and like I remember that same exact year. I think I was in kindergarten. Um, I went to Spirit, and out of all the costumes, I picked young Anakin doing nice. the pod racer. So I got like the, it was like this shitty mask that it didn't even cover up your full head. It was <laughs> like, like his half, helmet. Yeah, it was just half, and like had a, it had like these gray plastic eye pieces so you can like hardly see anything out of them and it was just like basically a tan spandex suit with like it just printed on but i felt like the coolest fucking kid ever and um whose the, idea was that was that your idea oh no it was you? mine it was all mine i take a hundred percent credit on that and uh like i don't i think that um one of my favorite parts was like when they go in that one ship underwater like yeah. with Jar Jar. With Jar Jar. <laughs> oh, I love Jar Jar. Right? Like, <laughs> he's, he might I be a Sith Lord. he gets way too much hate. Oh, yeah, he what? could be a Sith Lord. Yeah, yeah there, there are theories about how he's uh, smarter than he We can't. That's appears. a whole podcast in yeah. itself right there. You got to look that up, actually. That topic. YouTube uh, Jar Jar being Sith Lord. Well, Conspiracy as theories. As home. <laughs> already getting started. Um, <laughs> the last movie I saw, though, was um, Miranda July's Kajillionaire uh, when theaters opened up again. And. There were only two other people. Well, I went with, like, two other people, and we, like, social distanced and whatnot. But we had the entire theater to ourselves. And it was, like, one of those nice theaters with, like, recliners and stuff. And then you could just, like, kick back. And it was it was much needed. I, I love that movie. Miranda July is a treasure. And I stand by that. Wow. Richie. So, uh, yeah, so it's my turn. Uh... Well, the first movie I saw in theaters, I believe I was in fifth grade. Um, it was Rush Hour 2 with my family. That was the first time I ever went to the movie theaters. You just won. Yeah, yeah that's you just won. <laughs> that's the best one. I thought Patrick won, honestly. Yeah, or Ashley, because you, you dressed up and everything. So. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you, saw your, you saw your crush and probably impressed everybody. Also, like, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. <laughs> Did he ever, like, say anything about it to you? No. Oh, no. I don't think oh, we no. ever, like, spoke again. <laughs> oh, no. final, final straw. Yeah, that, that was, like, the, that's it. No, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> like, this girl's weird. <laughs> and I am. <laughs> weird is good. Weird is good. Um, yeah, I remember, like, laughing so much. Uh, and I, I remember how, like of an experience that was being a kid like being 11 and then um watching the previews because the previews have become like my favorite like staple of going to the movie theaters just seeing what's coming up and uh i remember watching the preview for zoolander and that just made me like crack up so bad <laughs> watching all that um yeah that was such a fun experience um but the the last movie i saw in theaters was the invisible man uh, starring Elizabeth Moss, and that was uh, a really good film. Um, yeah, that was like way back in like February. So I've been itching to go to the movie theaters, but with everything that's going on, um, you know, I'm trying to play it safe. But you know, I do want to see Tenet. But with what you said, Tyler, like I've heard not so good things or very so mixed reaction. But other yeah. people I know who saw it too said they didn't have a problem with the sound. So maybe yeah. theaters like adjusted it or something. <clears throat> 
Yeah, I mean, Nolan has an issue with sound in some of his movies. <laughs> but uh, yeah, The Invisible Man. Yeah, that was a really good film. So, With that being said, let's segue into what we actually came here to talk about today, which is that Patrick actually selected the movie that we're actually going to do for this episode. So Patrick, do you want to talk more about it? Yeah, I picked, uh, I don't have the log line in front of me, but I picked uh, Love and Pop. 1998, directed by Hideaki Anno, I believe. I, I think I could go off memory. Uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite directors from the continent, or no, from, the, from Japan. One of my favorite directors, period. And the plot of Love and Pop is essentially... It's a day in the life of these young girls in Tokyo, Japan, as they aimlessly reflect on their lives and they engage in a practice of dating for compensation. I believe it has a word in their culture. Enjokasai. Enjokasai. Yeah, where they engage in that in certain districts of the larger Tokyo city. I think Shibuya district is where they mostly hang out. Yeah, and then um, and then you suggested to have Ashley on today. Um any particular reason for Ashley's perspective? Yes. I don't want to sound too much like a stalker. Okay. okay. <laughs> Go ahead. And you know you can sound when I have to preface this with that line. But I had watched Love and Pop for the first time in April. And I want to say it's like top three movies for me now. Like I, I was thinking about it for like the whole month after. And I want to say I saw Ashley shared like a woman in film or woman in cinema page on her Instagram. That was a scene from the film and I recognized it right away. And so when it came time to, we all rotate our picks for the film podcast. I felt this was when I had to force upon you guys to make you watch it. Cause I love it so much and I respect the craft of it so much. I feel the need to shove it onto you guys. And I thought, I think Ashley has uh, some level of interest in it. I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear her <laughs> opinion on it Thank as you. well as the fact <laughs> It's four dudes again, and yeah. we barely got by with where we belong. We're, we only have so much of a perspective where I hope, Ashley, you can... I know you're smart, and I know you can bring something to the conversation that we probably don't even think about. No, I agree. I think that uh, since we are just um, four gentlemen like watching a film that's primarily about um, a young teenage girl who is a call girl by night and like a, a, a high school student by day, um, I think it's important to have Ashley's perspective and seeing um, how that's like. Even though the film is from 1998, I, I feel like there is a lot about it that's still relevant um, in our current climate today. So. そう、大人になってからでもできることをやったりするほど私たちはのんきに生きてはいないいや、あの、そうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそうやいやそ
my first impression was like how like beautiful it was and it kind of like showed like the mundaneness of like everyday like life and then it kind of like introduced us to this like group of four girls that kind of just I don't know trying to figure out like what life was on their own with this new like <laughs> um with this new element of like what subsidized dating is in terms to like get what they want but also like they have their they have their own control gosh i'm sorry <laughs> i'm like trying to no you're doing fine you're good yeah you're good okay. that, absolutely that good very... i feel like i'm oh. just rambling right now no no believe you we just ramble wait. just like ninety percent of the time, so you are perfectly fine. Ashley, you're Believe doing great. us. That's okay. think, <laughs> like think of this as like coming out of a movie theater and like talking about it with all your friends. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, just using subsidized dating as a way to get what they want out of life and kind of also trying to figure out what they want. Um I don't know. I I I personally felt like this film just is like a coming of age story but with a different like culture and a different like point of view that I don't usually like get living in like America and like living in California like I had no idea that even subsidized dating like even existed so it was like really interesting to see that you know I find it uh, interesting that you say that because a handful of years ago I actually knew someone that wanted to do this exact same thing um, this is actually a thing that's on Craigslist, and I knew someone that um, wanted to go on, uh, I guess, escort dating or something. You just go hang out with someone, and they pay you. And I remember sh her telling me about it and how, like, she wanted, like, her friend to, like, be across the street and, like, watch them while they go on the date and stuff. So, like, the, the fact that, um, that's why I say it's relevant, because it, imagine, like, that's in 1998. It's probably happens way more often now, right? Um, with uh, our technological advances. Um, but I want to ask you, um, with these girls going on these compensated datings or subs subsidized dating, um, do you feel like they still have agency or they still have control or power in what they do? Or do they not? I feel like they do have control because they personally chose to go on the date and they're like, I, I don't want to say like they're putting themselves in that situation, but I feel like it's so normalized in that society that it's just like, hey, I'm doing this. It's just like a, like, um, you, I take and you give, or it's like a give and take situation kind of. And just like, like the fact that it's like so normalized and this is how like young women in Japan and Tokyo are able to get money and get what they want in order to pursue like things that they want. Um, Sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> oh, whether or not they have agency or control in their situations because they are high school girls. So one can argue the fact that like, hey, um, you know, the, the lead character is 16 years old. Yeah. Is she technically a woman yet? Or, you know, um, you know, one can criticize the fact that she is doing this. Yeah. So I, I definitely believe that people are like, she was able to make that decision for herself. It was also... It was kind of like a very like trusting situation. Um, so obviously there, she's subsidized dating with like older men. So I feel like she like trusts that they won't take advantage of her and they'll just have like a fair trade kind of. So it was kind of like more or less like trust. That's a good point. 
feel like it would be like a case by case basis. Like you normally like would have the power, but then like you could meet a sketchy dude and get like a weird vibe, and you got to get out. Well, I mean, do you feel like because there's such a cultural difference from where we are and where they are that it's viewed differently? I don't know. I mean, in that context, what, what do you mean? Like, in, like, just like evaluating? Oh, okay, so imagine if this was an American film, and that that you know that a sixteen year old was doing the same things. Do you feel like people would look at it differently in a Western context? Yes. Yeah. I think so as well For because sure. um, if I remember correctly, the I think the age of consent is much lower in Japan rather than here. So I feel like it's it's quite normalized for all of these old men. Like, I mean, for instance, there was that one scene that was like really animated, um, with, with the guy, like, it's not considered spoiler territory yet, but, um, where it was like the businessman who was like in the tunnel as, um, uh, you know, the two young women are going down there and he's like being really animated with his emotions. Like, Oh wow. Check this out. Oh, ah. and he's like doing all these exaggerated movements and stuff. And I feel like the fact that it's so, over the top it's like a criticism against that culture like right off the bat and i think that that alone suggests the complete normalized nature of it all in that country and i think it would be quite different here because that sort of thing is definitely frowned upon especially with the young women you know I, I agree with your point kevin because um we have to preface the fact that uh hideko anno is known for um, his work um, in creating the anime series Evangelion, and this is his first live-action feature, mm -hmm. if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I felt like a lot of sequences in the film with the way it's edited, and like it's very jittery in its editing, and uh, it's very experimental, <laughs> and I felt like it came off as an anime to me. So uh, you're right, I, I feel like some of the characters act extremely exuberant, an eccentric, and I'm like, I feel like I'm watching an anime sometimes. Yeah. I would say he created that in the genre. Like, he's the source. His, that's his style, and then stuff that followed would take after it. Especially, like, Kevin brought up the scene in the tunnel. There's one at the very first where I think she first arrives in Shibuya, and she's immediately accosted. And there's the rapid cuts, and there's, like, the red bull's cap on someone in the distance, mm -hmm. and then the, the guy's car when he talks about it, and then... Yeah people's close-ups of their eyes watching it happen and what i love about anno is he's doing a it's especially from an outsider to the culture but his films are typically like harsh critiques of his own culture and japanese culture like all of evangelion is a critique about like semi-militarism as well as psychological repression and emotional repression uh, love and pop love and pop we'll talk about but it's very straightforward about the patriarchal society of japan uh, hyper consumerism of the 80s which a reason I love this is it parallels our own 80s of hyper consumerism and what would become modern age consumerism as we have now with the tech age and that's why I feel it's still so relevant and then he even did Shin Godzilla which is like a direct critique of the f handling of the Fukushima disaster by the Japanese government so he's not afraid to like lean in and just make a scathing commentary on his society or government, which I really commend of him as an artist. I agree. And um, 
Pat, you mentioned earlier about him being one of your favorite directors and right. artists of of all time. I mean, I'd imagine all time, right? Or I don't know, maybe. He's up there. He's up there. Yeah. <laughs> um, you you showed me uh, Neon Genesis, Evangelion, and that entire series has become more than just a series for me, especially after watching End of Evangelion, which was the feature that came after the series. That to me is the movie that the series was building up to the entire time and just the the way that Anno is able to create almost like a stream of consciousness within cinema itself it's something that has stuck with me and also the level of vulnerability that he's able to inject into these works of art especially with this movie Love and Pop because not only does he um is he unafraid of exposing all of these deep-seated insecurities in these characters? Um, I feel like it's also an extension of, of his own thoughts and his own upbringing and his own experiences when it comes to uh, viewing call girls in his own society. And I believe that this type of artistry is very important and very relevant to keep preserved in in today's culture and every i mean pretty much in all time criticism is is much needed because when people start to be surrounded by yes people you tend to create an echo chamber within you know a microcosm of society where basically it's a herd mindset and it's a very dangerous thing so the fact that he's able to i mean and i applaud japan for actually not censoring uh, a lot of his work because like Pat said he criticizes a lot of the cultural norms and I feel like in certain countries that sort of thing wouldn't fly especially well no I won't go naming countries um, but <laughs> <laughs> they're all watching yeah, it's like, oh, <laughs> we're going to get banned wide. next <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're going to lose our endorsements coming. <laughs> but um I, I deeply appreciate Anno, like I said, once again, for his, for his perspective and his vulnerability in his work. And it's not just appreciating him, but appreciating his artistry and his, and his uh, creations as a whole. I wanted to touch... Oh, sorry, Tyler. Oh, I didn't say anything. Oh, my bad. <laughs> Hypersensitive. I wanted to touch on another aspect of, I think, the Anno style, and Kevin may agree or not, but it felt like everyone had a flaw in the film. Every character had a positive and a negative trait. So it's like hard. It's one of my favorite things. It has the complexity to the world and the characters of like, uh, now is she's an enthusiastic hobbyist, but she still feels the need to conform to like diet and self body image standards where she's like starving herself in a great scene as well as all the other members of her group. And even those who objectify and take advantage of her, like some are more reprehensible than the others or just outright monsters to some degree, but you still see a perspective of where they're victims themselves of the greater society and culture. Yeah. Uh, I want to harken back to, uh, what Ashley said about how, uh, these girls have control or agency over their situation. Um, because it still makes me think about like how young the our lead character um, her name is Hiromi, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, she's played by uh, actress Asumi Miwa, and she was 16 at the time when this film came out. So she was around 15, 16. She was pretty much the age of this character. And um, I can only imagine how controversial this film would be if it was like re-released again, if it was given a, a, a wider release, um, if it was redone. I think that it would have a lot of controversy behind it um, because of how young she was, because her other um, co-stars were of age, I believe, around the time, like 17, 18. Um, but it's hard to see her as an adult making these decisions, going on these dates with these men who are anywhere between, like, what, 30 to 50 years old? Um, yeah, and it's not like she is from a very poor family or anything. Uh, kind of reminds me of, like, Sean Baker's films, where he uh, his movies are centered around people that are living on the fringes of society. Whereas uh, the main character in this film, Hiromi, is not living on the fringes of society, but some of the people that she's meeting might be in terms of like mental health or psychological health. Um, yeah, what do, you guys, what do you guys think about that? I think that, um, sorry, I'm just gonna chime in on that. Um, I came across this study recently and I don't know to what extent it, um, you know, uh, what it, what it's, or how, how true it's considered to be. And if there's any sort of like factual evidence behind it, um, especially depending on how many people were in the pool of the study, but it mentioned that, um, in our society today with, the um, with the rapid development of technology and all of this information, like we're pretty much in the age of information right now. And, Basically, the study came to the conclusion that um, in our own country, 18 is considered the age of adulthood. However, they said that maturity from the study um, has actually decreased or has it has uh, amplified to the age of around 25 to where you're considered a mature adult to be able to make conscious decisions because we have so much information that we have to process that it delays the, ma the maturation process. And um, what you mentioned about Hiromi um, being 16 and you know how strange it is to be, uh, to be given all of these uh, decisions to be made that are life-changing in a certain sense, it, it's, it's mind-boggling to believe that someone that young can actually you know, have a I guess, a full awareness of the repercussions of certain decisions that they make. And myself, I, I feel like I read, I feel like I just started learning how to be an adult maybe like two years ago. And <laughs> it's very strange because, you know, we have like social media, we have all of these ads, we have all of these news stories and also like uh, misinformation as well that we have to process that it ends up taking so much of our attention span away from actually growing ourselves. And once again, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's entirely factual or not. So take it with a grain of salt, but I found it to be very thought provoking nonetheless. So, uh, Ashley, what, uh, what is your reaction to that? What do you, um, like, what are some things about Hiromi do you feel like you can relate to, like, at her age? 
to be honest, I actually really admire her for being like so brave and kind of like having that drive to like get what she wants, whatever means necessary, kind of. Um, but yeah, with what Kevin was saying, like having like a lot of information and a lot of like repercussions and like being kind of like forced into being mature and like having to make these decisions is like really tough. And like the fact that she kind of like went past that because she wanted to get, can I like talk about the film? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, because she wanted to get like the ring because it like meant like, like a lot to her was just like very like admirable and I don't know, like (laughs) just, um, well, it was something that she felt like it was a value so that when she was getting the money, she didn't want all her friends to just give her all that money. Right. Yeah. It was kind of just like her kind of like in a sense, like wanting to earn it for herself because it was like a representation of her in a way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, like a representation of how like she thinks of herself as an adult. She thinks of herself as, Hey, I, I did this all by myself. Mm-hmm. Right. So it wasn't, yeah, she wants everyone to f- be equal. Mm-hmm. And that's where I take the, the, is it, I, I'm keep saying postmodern, but like the, just like where we belong. I feel this film touches on the, is it absence of agency or just the absence of presence in her own lives? And like, Hiromi feels like she has an aimless nature. We The film opens with her on the bridge talking about how things are always changing. You're a child, and then you're a young adult, and then you're an old person, and you're dead. And even the abstract things change inside people. Like, I think her line is, our hearts change over time. You may not even notice it happened. It feels like she's struggling with, like, especially in a materialist culture. And then that's why her pursuit is, again, is like a, it's just a topaz ring. It's a weird material item. And throughout the film, we see the point of view shots. I think it opens pretty fast with her admiring her hands. Mm-hmm. And that's one of those things where I'm not familiar with, I'm not familiar with how nails are supposed to be done. Her, so I don't know if her hands are no, good. Her, her nails, nails are, are like well really done. pretty. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she feels an immense pride in her hands and she wants to get the ring to accompany it. And that's, and even like her self doubt where her friend mm-hmm. has to give her a card because she believes she's not doing her hands right. And yeah, I just felt like the whole film was another, like her character is struggling with purpose in the modern age of what does it mean to be an adult? She sees her friends changing and some are growing up faster than her. Some are doing things they have passion for. And she feels like she's somewhat aimlessly drifting back and forth. And then for a brief moment, she finds the ring has like an answer to like, oh, my hands will look even nicer. But then at the cost of all the other stuff that happens throughout the film, as well as like the final message being to go against that type of materialist pos- pos- uh, possessions. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, I think overall, like, it wasn't just about her pursuing something materialistic, but it was about herself, like, because all her friends had goals in their lives. They had something that they were good at. You know, one of her friends were really good at computers. Um, another one was... Uh, the dancer. Dancing, yes. Yeah. They had passions in their lives. Um but she didn't really have anything. She had dreams of going away on a train. There's the motif of the train, 
and I feel like that's uh, it was pretty much an ongoing symbol in the film about how she wants to either get away or she wants to chase something else in her life. That's uh, interesting that you say that because um, I interpreted the train symbolism as passivity in motion because throughout the entire course of the movie, you see Hiromi's father setting up this um, toy train uh, around like the living room and the kitchen of their home. And um, I won't go into too much detail of it, but um, throughout, I mean, especially the scene that you mentioned earlier, Pat, where she's walking on the bridge, I feel that um, each time there is sequences in this movie where there are crossfades of the same footage just layering on top of one another to create like a dizzying effect of different pathways and motion and also images of uh, people in crowds. Each person is kind of like their own, uh, their own train on their own uh, pre predestined road or uh, route that they're supposed to go on. And I found it to um, go back to predestination and whether or not you choose to accept passivity or uh, action and agency in, in one's own life. Funny that you mentioned trains. Um, I completely thought like the train motif was just basically kind of this, like her feeling stuck and just going round, like around and around and around, and it just kind of like that's how I kind of like interpreted that motif. Wow. Oh. Okay. I took it as <laughs> I took it as like she's just like what you were talking about earlier, Pat. Like she's you know coming of age and trying to figure out what she's doing in life and. So every, like the train's just passing through, it turns one way, it turns another way, passes another person. And you could just look at that as life. Like you take a bad turn in life, you take a good turn. Um, <laughs> you meet cool people, people come and go. Tyler dropping knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 I got the real answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I've seen a couple of his films and shows. My dude just loves trains. <laughs> yeah, that trains are tight. That he does. <laughs> it's in Ritual in 2000, Shin Godzilla, Evangelion. Trains are a big motif again in this film. But no, he, he is on record saying the trains represent a lot to him. Like, that's a... When he's able to put that in the film, I think it is him. Like, that's a bit of himself coming through and what that means. But if, whichever one of our interpretations is closest. Something about train tracks always enamored him as a child. So much so, he... I think every film he makes, there's some level of train imagery. Yeah, there's a cyclical nature to trains. It always comes back, you know, back to that first stop. So, There's one scene I'm really looking forward to talking about in regards to the train. And, uh, yeah, I'm just excited. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, with that being said, should we just segue to just, uh, just our ratings of the film? Oh, so, Ashley, since you're you're uh, here for the first time. We usually give it a rating out of five stars. So um, I guess we can all kind of go first before you want to give your rating and you can give some time. Thank you so kind. <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, Patrick, since you picked the film, uh, what would you rate the film? Uh, I'm going to set the precedent and obviously a five out of five. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I love this film. It's not a feel-good movie. No. Uh, uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> It hurts in a good way. It hurts where you relate to the characters being hurt, and you hurt a bit too. And as well as just the craft, the editing style, the music choice, it's oh. all so anno. And uh, I think the fact that it's 
I want to say it's very independent. Like it's shot all in handheld digital cameras, which has its own motivation with the whole theme of the film. But I just love how bold they were to like just tape cameras to stuff and let it do its thing. And like, yeah, visually it's very striking. Yeah. Um, that's what I liked the most about it was all the camera work and editing certain sequences. I remember like in the beginning of the film when she like parks her bike and just like gets off her bike. I don't even, I can't the really even picture it, it yeah. but it was just like a, like a four second sequence. And I was like, wow, that was just, that was fire editing right there. And then, uh, but I guess I'll, I'll give it a four out of five. Cause I don't know. I think it, it seems like a, I've only seen it once and it, I've definitely seems like a film you need to watch multiple times to really uh, catch everything. Um, but yeah, like I, I enjoyed all the characters and, there was a lot of quotes in it that stuck with me too. Like, uh, there's a certain scene at the end of the film. I guess I won't talk about it right now, but we'll bring up that quote. I'm uh, going to give it a 4.5 out of 5. This is the second time I've seen it. I, I, I think we watched it around the same time. I think you told me about this movie. Yeah. We were doing the same film challenge. And yeah, I watched it shortly afterward. And it just... I'm having to like take a pause right now. <laughs> But it blew me away, um, especially just being so in love with, like, making films myself with, like, a lot of my friends and stuff. I mean, with all of you. Um, the opening shot of Hiromi floating in the water and just the spotlight down on her set the precedent of it for me. And this was after I came off of watching End of Evangelion. And that movie alone takes, like, such a wind-up to understand truly... I want to say like even like a quarter of the of the content that's put into it as w with this movie as well and the the music choice of having all of these classical artists like you have uh, Claude Debussy and um and Eric Satie and all of these I mean just it was like a part of that one period of um impressionism and also like avant-garde classical music and it just creates this overall melancholic feel to the movie that defines it. And the symbolism alone with the trains and every character just being so lost. And as Pat mentioned earlier, each one of them has their own flaw. Like there's abandonment issues, there's rejection issues. And this is like a parallel with the end of Evangelion, which once again, <laughs> blew me away. Um, anyways, um, one thing that I love about Anno himself is that he he feels like such a groundbreaking artist when it comes to his unique style and perspective when it comes to creating movies, especially with the editing, like Tyler mentioned earlier, with um, that small little four-second uh, section of Hiromi parking her bike. It's just a quick flash of like four images, and it creates like such a unique impressionistic effect that it sticks in your mind and his movies are just rich with this type of editing and I feel like if I didn't know anything about movies and I saw this type of stuff it would still affect me the same way but since I know about like a few of the aspects of it it makes me want to completely rip off everything that he does in like my own stuff <laughs> and I don't know, like, I'm just such a huge fan, and he's so influential to me, and this movie alone, in terms of creating 
a unique story that I never really had a perspective on beforehand and being able to tell, oh, this is a direct criticism against all of the fetishization of um, these young women and also uh, showing (laughs) the strange routes that they're going on in life and how they feel at the end of the day. It was just such a unique experience for me. And watching it the second time around, it caught so many different things from it. And yeah, that's my rating. Um, man, for me, it was really hard to think of uh, how I felt about the film in terms of rating because I wouldn't really say that this movie had flaws per se. Um, you can tell he, uh, I don't know, had a clear vision. He used handheld, like you said, Patrick. There were a lot of like jittery editing extremely experimental like transitions and effects that he uses that uh you don't really see often in in western films and um man i i just kind of didn't really know what to expect when i started watching this when you think of love and pop um and then when you find out why the movie's called love and pop it's just it kind of stings a little um kind of piggybacking off what everyone said it is about like these not only these high school girls but like it's about like the degradation of these older men and like how they aren't really progressing in their own lives like that they need to use these women for some kind of catalyst for themselves like to reach something like some kind of meaning in their own lives that they don't have i thought that was very powerful um but I can see how like some of the editing can be a bit jarring for me. Um, I thought the performance is really good, especially from the lead actress. Um, but it could also be a bit problematic considering that, you know, the age of the, uh, the actors and the crew and stuff, um, that can be kind of controversial today if it were to be more accessible and mainstream. Um, so like putting that actress in that situation, or even if it's just simulated, it's it can still be viewed as very problematic, I think. Um, but in terms of my rating, I would right now I would give it a a three point seven five. Um, it's hard for me to say that there's anything wrong with it. I think it's just some of the the topics and the issues and like the casting. I can see how like that could be a problem for a lot of people, and. Man, when you get through at least ha- through halfway through the film, it's just man. It was at times it was really hard to watch, um, and it's definitely not an enjoyable movie to watch. It's not supposed to be entertaining or enjoyable. It's supposed to be a commentary, like everyone's been saying, on uh, Japanese culture and what it is that they normalize out there when it comes to compensated dating, and like. Like we've been mentioning, if this wasn't a Western film, oh man, just imagine everyone piling on this film. I don't think, I don't think a remake or anything would like do it justice. So yeah. I was extremely invested in this film. Um, right from the moment that I like started watching it, I thought this film was like really progressive, and I feel like the way that the director just like made everything just feel very like in real time like you're actually like there with them kind of like almost like you're like the fifth friend and just I felt like I was 
I was in, I was just very invested in them and I don't know it was just really amazing to like watch and like almost like <laughs> it would it be wrong to say this is a coming of age film I don't okay. think it's wrong. No. <laughs> but it's just a coming-of-age film, but it's, like, a different type of coming-of-age film. I'm, like, I'm kind of sick and tired of all the high school films. Like, those are, like, I'm not, <laughs> kind of terrible. Um, but, yeah, it's just, like, a different point of view, a different, like, culture. It just, I don't know. I just really, like, dove in. And, like, the director didn't, like, care. He didn't give a fuck. He was just, like, <laughs> he's just, like, I'm going to, like, show you, like, what is happening and like like let me show you what a real teenager in Jap- japan is i was gonna say in japanese is, <laughs> in japan is. <laughs> but um if i was gonna give it a rating i'd probably give it like a four or 4.5 yeah. <laughs> yeah okay with that being said uh we give all of our ratings um yeah so again patrick suggested this film uh, if anyone else has seen this film or have any like comments about it or criticisms, do email us at latefilmpodcast.gmail.com. Um, I think this film, I think you picking this film did a, you did a really great job, Patrick, at like providing us like this discourse of like comparing what it's like living out here and then living and what it's like out there. And like what Ashley said, like compared to coming of age films, I mean, yeah, this sets the bar. This is what. I feel like coming of age films should be and it doesn't hold back it doesn't try to gloss over some of the harder more taboo topics of coming of age and i think that that's what we're missing a lot out here when it comes to that genre so now we can get more into spoilers Mine.何かで聞いたんですけど、お前がこうやって裸になっている時、誰かが死ぬほど悲しい思いをしているんだぞって、それってどういう？そのセリフ考えた人って優しい人だね。だってさ、それはお前には価値があるっていうことでしょ。安売
especially this film. Do you think when you watch a coming of age film, because we're all like 25 right now, right? Or everyone's over 25, I, w- I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, like at our age now, do you think coming of age films like hit the same as if like, say you want, like I kind of wish I would have seen this movie when I was like 18 rather than 25. I don't know. What do you guys, what do you think? Like, do you think there's a difference from like the age of your age or maturity when you watch a coming of age film? You know, you bring up a really good point with that because I mean, I mean, even think back to like a movie that you saw when you were let's say like five and then, like, you jump, like, to when you're, like, 15, you watch it again, you come back 10 years later, 25, you watch it again, 35, so on. I feel like at each milestone of our lives, our perspectives change. However, our core personalities remain the same. Um, and I believe that, yes, um, I think that having like if one were to watch this movie at a younger age, you would be all the more impressionable to it and have um, certain characteristics of it resonate with you at that time in your life. For instance, let's say that uh, you were Hiromi's age and your friends were going through the same troubles that her own were. For instance, like one of them's thinking of dropping out of high school to pursue a job or a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I feel like that would hit all the more harder at that age because when you're young, you're searching for guidance, whether or not you receive it and you take what you can get. I mean, at least that I know that that's what I did when it comes to watching movies. And that's why I still watch movies is because in my own life, I've learned the most through observation of, uh, people in my own life, as well as, uh, movies, books, um, music, what have you. And I feel like it's, I don't know. I feel like it's different at each at each age uh, yeah. range. I feel like depending on what movie like really resonates with you is like different because like I like obviously each film is trying to tell a different story. Like I felt like watching like Perks of Being a Wallflower was like really like eye opening to me, and I just like I can I feel like it would have helped me like at like the age of like what 14 till now like i literally still watch that movie and like cry at the end like i don't know yeah the the twist and like what goes on with the main character and when you find out like what was really going on mm-hmm. yeah that was very powerful yeah. yeah so i feel like it just depends and like uh for like love and pop like obviously like cultural differences obviously like also like have a point on there too but also for what patrick was gonna say i was gonna say do you think like the movie is like her kind of becoming an individual rather than just like being in a group because i feel like that is like a main part of that as well i feel like i want to hope she has and i want to hope i am too i want to hope both of us are growing as people yeah <laughs> and that's why when like a, for some coming of age films uh it's probably since we're older or some of us are older, when we go back, it's like a nostalgic lens on it and we feel like we did when we were younger. But I think the message of this one where it's just, it's like self-confidence and just like, I'm, I still get anxiety. Even though I know you guys are all my friends, I still get anxiety. Like, oh, I said something stupid. They think I'm crazy. <laughs> bad movies. And all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but when you watch a film like this, for me, I get reminded, like, oh, no, I need to know. I need to focus more on being a better person and not worrying about the other stuff. 
because you guys are my friends. I think that's what I take away from this film when I come back to it. But I can't think of a lot of other coming of age films maybe I've seen. Yeah, uh, Tyler, uh, can you think of any coming of age films that you feel like are comparable to this film? Or I know that you mentioned you haven't seen a lot of like international like foreign films, right, or Korean Japanese cinema. Uh, yeah, not a whole lot. Uh, I was literally just about to say that I feel like this is like a super unique coming of age film because I think you know in America you used to what did we watch with uh, with Kaylee? I forget what it was called. Oh, uh, we watched the half of it. The half of it. Like mm-hmm. that's your. I wouldn't call it your typical coming of age film, but it's like like the blueprint is pretty typical. So I can't. No, I can't. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't. No. You know what just came to me? Um, with a lot of coming-of-age movies, there is a love interest. This movie does not have that, yeah. and I commend it for that. Mm-hmm. Because it prevents you from projecting your own desires onto this character and the other one in the equation. And it ends up fo- it ends up uh, making you focus more on their own internal thought processes and uh, actions. And, yeah, I just wanted to take a moment to appreciate that. Yeah, there's no male characters. And the primary driving role, I think, in this film. Although, um, when we do meet some of the the male like supporting characters in the film, the film has like this weird um, camera trick, or, like like the POV shots of being like underneath a bike, and you're just kind of looking up at them while they're riding their bikes. Like it's kind of odd to me. It's kind of uncomfortable. Like I don't know, like crotch shots, but it's not sensual. It's like peeping shots. Like, yeah, peeping, like. like- I thought that some of the shots were odd. Like, I don't know what the tr- why that what, choice yeah, was made. The, uh... I feel like Pat should chime in on this. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's very deliberate. That's the, right. I want to say the, the, entire, the entire film was shot on, like, handheld digital cameras. And I want to say that during the 90s, especially after the 80s tech boom, there was an epidemic of people sneaking cameras. I think there's even a line in the film where, is it her sister advises her when she's riding the train before she leaves? Or is it her mother? That was her mother, right? Yeah, like, oh, there's some creep was caught with a camera yesterday on the news. Be careful when you go out. And the whole film is shot from that voyeuristic perspective of, like, mm-hmm. a lot of the camera work is waist down. I think one of the bike scenes is very uncomfortable where they, thankfully, with the lighting, they don't show anything, but it's, like, very, like, it's almost directly under her bike and under her yeah. skirt. And it's, it's meant to not entice you, I feel, because I don't find it enticing. It just gives you like a small anxiety if you are getting any voyeuristic pleasure from the film. It's supposed to give you a ramping anxiety of like, why why do I feel this is okay and this isn't okay? These characters are complex and you're supposed to relate to them as people. And if you're sitting there objectifying them, I think the film wants you to sit there and just hate yourself. Well, yeah, I think that's the whole reason why I say like it was uncomfortable, but just because of the positioning of the camera and even like, but like you mentioned before, the positioning of the camera being the point of view of the ring when, when all the girls are looking at the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives the ring like a character. Like the, the whole point of the point of view shot is to give perspective to that thing. And so we've got that quite a, a few times with some of the male characters where you're in their point of view. Um, like the... Uh, the last person, Captain, yeah, Captain EO. Oh, EO. Yeah, Captain EO. Yeah. So very, uh, I think that one was more prevalent when we get like his. That was the perspective. Make you I, even before, even before like that bathroom scene when he was walking around and 
Doesn't he immediately go for her belongings and take the once? Isn't it when we go POV, he's immediately like he's stopping what he's doing and he goes over and destroys the film. He yeah, yeah. Like, he grabs like the room and also when he and had the, the toy as well, and she was talking to him about how she can fix it. Oh, so there were like multiple points where it wasn't just him, but like other people in the film as well. Oh, I think the toy's name is Fuckball. Or no, fuzz, no, it's, it's fuzzball. fuzzball. It's, fuzz, it's fuzzball. Yeah, I actually saw this <laughs> on because it was like censored in the I know, subs. I was like, okay, I guess. It's, I mean, I only know a four-letter. I thought it was fuckball. Jeez, <laughs> Kevin, you're such a perv. <laughs> Yeah, no, my mind went to deep places when that was like, like, what is this guy doing with this fucking doll, man? That's creep. No, but I saw, like, I don't know, it's just on a YouTube video, but I guess it's Fuzzball, and it's from, like, a Michael Jackson video? Yeah, at Disneyland, Captain EO. I think it was a short film at Disneyland? It was his music video. Yes. (laughs) It was a music video. (laughs) Did you you pick that up right away, Ashley, or did you um, No, I didn't. Okay. I didn't pick that up. Actually... Just when he said that, we're just like, oh, wow, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask everyone, like, what the hell were the meaning of his name? I, I thought it was for I sure. It now. <laughs> yes. uh, it's a great bit where they censor, they censor Michael Jackson. They censor, like, the middle of Jackson. They censor Captain EO. He's Captain mm. E blank. Mm-hmm. Fuzzball censor because it's a trademark little, like, Yoda figure, baby Yoda toy Disneyland made in the 80s, I think. Star Wars inspired. (laughs) And even Disneyland, they censored Disneyland when he says, Oh, my dad took me to Disney, and it beeps when he finishes the sentence. That's just, yeah, it's a little tongue in cheek thing about consumerism and media consumption. Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, I found it crazy that, like, you know, we've been saying, like, yeah, these girls have agency and whatnot, but uh, when the men see them on their dates, and then the the first uh man i forgot the guy's name but the guy with the towel and he was sweating and he was spitting a lot he had oh, the the disease and whatnot um, he had a tick mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah the, he had the tick the tick guy so oh, yeah, there's a great which, pov for him yeah so when we see him and he's like sniffing her and it's just like and then the 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 framing is extremely like odd it's like, like claustrophobic I, yeah and it's just so weird, but like she still goes on with it. Like, while he's doing that parallel, he takes up probably like eighty percent of the screen, and the left sliver—it's not her point of view, but it's her. I feel like it's being like, objectified. But yeah, it's, it's like a shot of her with him leaning in and sniffing, so we know it's him doing that. While he, the first point of view is doing it as well. Yeah, and yeah, that was another red flag. Where it's yeah, there's a lot of uncomfortable. Scenes and shots like that, for sure. A lot. Yeah. The first the first date they go on with the friends. That's when, when you said point of view, I was trying to struggle where... I think it happens when she goes by herself. It becomes more point of view. Because I think before then, the first two dates with her friends, it's very much... It's framed close. Like, the guy's drinking the beer. Yeah. It's just like a gross head-on of his teeth as yeah. he's swallowing beer. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cam work to intentionally, like, exemplify the gross attributes like if we were in the room with her on the same date, and we're like, and there's a power dynamic, and he's sitting there just chugging beer, and it's gross, and it makes you uncomfortable, and the the muscat scene, mm-hmm. yeah, with the grapes, yeah, that one of my favorite shots where I think he opens it, and does he like show him like this, and that sh- it goes to like a close but semi, but it's just it's a, it's them all in profile and a stack, yeah, just except- looking stern. I think except for Hiromi, it was extreme close-up. 
they had a different shot for her when they came to her last. Oh, you're talking about when they when each of them ate yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a great, powerful shot. The four of their faces like lined up in profile. Mm-hmm. Like the second he declares, like, "Oh, you guys gotta yeah. chew on these and put them in this." Cup. I didn't even like. I'm just like, what? I don't. Even, yeah, I don't even know why. Like, why? Romy says it. They don't want to find out ever. <laughs> yeah. Know that exists yeah. I, I feel like the film doesn't completely like villainize the men that they're going on dates with. I feel like they come off very creepy and uncomfortable, but they're not, they're still human beings. They're still men of like Japan. Like this is what life is. I think that's the whole reason why it's being shot and ha- handheld, but it still has all these like cinematic techniques that you don't typically get from this handheld camera, you know? So there's a whole point to, these crazy transitions and this crazy editing. It's not supposed to be a documentary, but it's documentary-like. Yeah, I feel like um, when the businessman took them out to dinner, he was, like, talking about his daughter, and like, oh, like, my daughter is, like, literally the same age as you, and then ends up, like, scolding them about how, like, the youth are, like, not good, and they don't listen, and you should be in school. Like, what are you doing hanging out with me, kind of? And, like, he definitely still treats the men as, like, human beings instead of villains. So Yeah, I would agree yeah. with that, too. I don't feel like no one was really... Even the guy at the end, I would say, is... I don't know, what would... You're shaking your head. Oh, he's, he's like, definitely, like, a sociopathic... I mean, I look at him as oh, a yeah. villain, but... For sure, yeah. but you still kind of no, sympathize with him. And yeah. in the scene following, when... Who does she meet? Uh, the guy... I, I can't remember his name, but... The guy who he had, she had his cell phone. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. yeah, she meets him last at the. Yeah. And cafe. then he says, "Like, oh, like that's like she tells him what, what uh, the guy in the hotel room said to her, and then he's like, oh, that's like, that's like a like he said that out of love or whatever. I was saying that how she has value still. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah." That's my favorite part of the film. That was that was the quote yeah. that stuck with me though. It was like, what did it? What did he say? He was like, the fact that you exist, or oh, I, I think he, I wrote it down. He says, uh, "You have value. You mustn't degrade yourself. You're something about like your nakedness." Is... He said, "Your your existence is yeah, your nakedness." And then he says, "Your existence is important to is important to someone that alone breaks that person's heart." I was like, "Oh." Yeah, I think that's, like, that ongoing theme of, like, even the first guy with the tick, like, he said he didn't want to do anything with her because he saw her smile. So her wholesomeness and her smile is what kind of, uh, like, I don't remember, like, it kind of subdued them in some way. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I think they're all, they all have redeeming qualities. Even, like, Yohara is just a social outcast, lower class... I actually thought the uh, the second guy they went to dinner with, where we like cook spaghetti and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> after I was like, oh, actually, this guy seems like a nice guy. <laughs> like, even though, like, I, I still think this guy. is weird. <laughs> I've actually seen this happen because, like, I bartend, so like, I'll see like a really like like attractive girl and she's with like an 80 year old like a really old guy and you can just like you go to the table and you can feel like you can feel it like i I can like i don't know i don't know what it is i mean it's just me like making assumptions but Mm -hmm. there's like a vibe there where i'm just like 
there's no way that like this isn't his granddaughter or his daughter and no. they're buying like steak and lobster and like all this and it's like I'm like oh this is yeah this happens in yeah. at my so work all is, the time. He, is he doing all the ordering or is she is oh yeah he does it all they okay. do it yeah usually actually no no I take that back sometimes they'll like a girl will, like do like I don't know be in control too I guess so yeah I think that guy in the film, his his thing, his he's a commentary on like the twelve hour days or like the salary man, the young entrepreneur, the young like guy overworked where he just he like the first guy is creepy the second he mentions his daughter's the same age and the guy who invites him over for dinner, you get the vibe he's just like a deeply lonely person and society's made him that way. Cause all he does is talk about is, oh, I just, I never get anyone to eat my cooking and praise me for my cooking. That's all I want. And he just makes a, what, eight dish lunch dinner thing for him. <laughs> and he's, oh, I've been prepping it since yesterday because I plan to get, no matter what, I plan to go out and grab someone and make them, not make them, but have them come over and just eat my food and praise me for it. Where he's like, he feels like he's trying to cut out like even a slice of personal time or not personal time, but just like interaction socially that the society may not give him or benefit him with that feels the need to go out and hire people to come over and eat his food that's so sad though that you have to pay for genuine human yeah interaction like i even looked up uh from the new york times statistics for um in the article from new york times called in japan mind in recession suicide soar so at the time in 1998 um there was a 34.7% increase in suicide rate from the year before in 1997. And that's when they were going through an economic recession. And this film came out in 1998. So, and Japan is pretty well known for their uh, suicide rate compared to the U.S. for a long time. So I think that this is kind of relevant in like what the men in the film are going through. Like, is that loneliness really lead to that i mean it's a part of the the problem right it's all these symptoms well i know that they have a very uh, a very crushing work ethic in their country as well where uh i believe that if you work for like a normal business or like a, a kind of like a um god what's the word i'm looking for um you know, like a standard like cubicle office job, you have to be there until your boss leaves. Otherwise, it's frowned upon. And then, if they want to go out and get drinks, you have to go with them as well to save face and like um, keep the boss happy. So you have people doing like twelve-hour plus days at work. And I know for me, like I fucking hate the nine-to-five jobs and. Even just working full-time itself, it's so bone-crushing to my own personal life and my identity. And I don't know, like it just does something to you psychologically to where you don't have as much of an outlet to pursue the things that you want to do, such as, you know, having the time to find human connection or to spend time with friends, to have enough time to cook, to do all of these other things. Uh, it, I, I can only imagine the... Um, the uh, effect that it has on mental health as a whole. Kind of like a train that never stops. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Wait, oh, this is just going full circle, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that's what like the main character is like afraid of? Like the soul-crushing nine-to-five? 
and she's just like trying to get out of that possibly but i also don't know if like women have like that same like or in that time would have that same like work mentality or if it's just like a stay at home mom because like i feel like oh yeah comparing like cultural yeah. differences and stuff right yeah Dang. so i'm not sure how do you <laughs> feel about that about wait women having a nine to five or, or just like <laughs> in general like um trying to find time for like personal time or personal time i feel like I don't really like people who make work their whole, like, life. I, like, it, it doesn't make sense. Like, the reason why people work is to enjoy, like, the little things in life. So if, like, work becomes, like, your entire, like, personality and just, like, everything that you do, it's just kind of, like, honestly, it's, like, very soul-crushing unless, like, you're working and doing something that you actually love instead of working to fund something that you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So... I feel like it's something we're all afraid of. That's why I don't want to get a new job. <laughs> I feel it. <laughs> I think that's why this quarantine's kind of at least made me feel more lethargic towards like what my future career could be. Like, what, what am I supposed to look forward to during this time? Like, what's what's viable right now? I know for me, I've always kept the mindset that I will now that I will never allow my career to take precedence over my my own personal fulfillment in terms of um, hobbies, in terms of uh, connections and everything like that. And for the longest time, I was very stubborn about getting a full-time job myself. And I just didn't like the notion of it because every person I knew that had one was completely miserable or they were all they would do was talk about their job. And that is... <laughs> I don't know. It's very disheartening because it's like, oh, is that all there is to life? Do we just go to work for for like eight hours of the day? Uh, Technically like 10, depending on your commute to and from and also having to get ready for it and then having to, you know, uh, you know, cool down after coming from work. It's like you don't have any time for yourself. And it's it's like I don't want to wake up one day and look in the mirror and see how much I've aged and how much I've lost in spite of just money. And it's like, I personally have a a very low opinion of money in and of itself because I don't find, or I don't place much value in it, even though that's what the system is all based on in our own capitalistic society where, you know, we do have to constantly earn to support ourselves. Well, uh, if you don't have a very high opinion on money, I'll make a Patreon. Can you donate? <laughs> hey, man, this is just the system. I, I, I didn't want to be born into this system, but here I am. <laughs> it's like you either float or you sink, which is awful. So, yeah, uh, with that being said, do we have any closing thoughts? Um, oh, yeah, I wanted to talk about, I think it's Kobayashi. <laughs> I could be wrong with the name. I just looked it up real quick. But... They have a character who is, I believe, I'm not sure if he's closeted in the film. I want to say he is. It's a businessman who gives now, now, the cell phone to use with the intention of eliciting messages from young boys that yeah. are believed to be aimed at now, but when he's going to listen to them for himself, which is like a bit of a character fault if you want to read it whatever way you want. And then later on in the film, a co-worker or a lover of his calls and mistakes Hiromi for Kobayashi's daughter, informs her the cat is sick, 
and that he's breaking up with Kobayashi and the tell when she gives or he gives she gives him the phone and then after this traumatic experience with Captain EO which is I think Hiromi almost gets raped by Captain EO but because she was like she did a kind thing for him and patched up this stuffed fuzzball he has some kind of deep psychological attachment to because it's the last gift from his parting father who abandoned him or just went to live with his new family before doing that so he spares her and then she's still traumatized by the experience and what he says about your nakedness here is causing someone to feel horrible or I can't remember the exact quote and I think it's Debussy playing in this great scene the editing's amazing yes dude I want to I think it's when she asks him that and Kobayashi leans into it Mm. and like the camera gets like a medium close up of him saying I think whoever says that cares deeply about the fact that we all have someone out there who cares deeply about us and loves us. And there's like a half second. This is where the Anno editing style comes in. There's like a half second cut to her reaction. And the first time I watched the film, that was my reaction. I was like straight up like leaning forward, eyes wide, just like Hiromi is in the shot. Like, like what is, like someone loves me, right? Kobayashi. And he just, we're introduced with him as like a flawed character. And he, had, he even has like symbols connected to an experience Hiromi almost had in ninth grade when she almost met up with a strange adult older man who like writes for screenplays as well. And he says, oh, meet me, I'll be wearing a bull's cap. And he's sitting there like, oh, I also write screenplays. And there's a bull's cap hung on the chair. It's like, is that the same guy? Is it not the same guy? And it's just a great little moment where this character out of the blue gives her like sage mentor advice. And that projects her reflective process throughout the remaining mm-hmm. 10 minutes of the film. I just love that scene. That's the entire film for me. The climax right there. I just wanted to throw that out there. Force it on you guys. Yeah. Um, no, I think that was my favorite. My favorite scene of the film, too. That made me feel the best <laughs> throughout the, the most, whole movie. the most heartwarming. <laughs> after all that stuff. Not that I don't need... Or that I need heartwarming. You know, I like the cold, dark shit, too. <laughs> <laughs> There are um, two things that I also want to uh, mention before we close out the episode. Um, the first one being after her experience leaving the hotel room with Captain EO, uh, there's a song that plays called Old Lang Syne, which is an old Scottish uh, song that's uh, quite tied to New, Year- to New Year's. And the title itself stands for, um, or it, it roughly translates to The Olden Days, which is... Um, and the movie, I mean, and the song itself, um, like a famous line of it, and, and it goes, Old acquaintances shall not be forgot. Um, with Hiromi's final monologue in the movie, she's talking about, um, like, I feel like the, the moment where she's floating in water and she's having a conversation with herself, it's, if we want to get, like, psychological about it, I feel like it's her higher, like, it's a conversation between her higher self and her ego. And her higher self is kind of the one asking the questions and trying to feel out what Hiromi as, you know, an individual living on earth and living in society and dealing with all these woes and basically navigating her own path in life, trying to gauge what she's learned from this experience of the day. And she's basically being as vulnerable as she could possibly be with herself. And um, she's reflecting on the nature of uh, passing friendships, and I found that to be so poignant when it comes to the song itself um, coming to New Year's because 
when the song's playing, we see a shot of the crowd in Japan and we see all the lights up in the trees and everything like that. And it's like after this horrible incident that just occurred to her, you see all of these people living their lives completely unaware of the things that go on with other, with other people. And I don't know. I just found it to be very melancholic when it, when it came down to it all. And, um, the second thing that I wanted to mention was, uh, I'm not sure if we talked about the dreams at the beginning and the end of the movie mm-hmm. where, um, the first one is of, uh, I mean, it's the, it's the scene like where, um, Hirom- where Hiromi and all of her friends are standing on the toy train set inside of a massive warehouse with like film gear. And the first dream is basically about, uh, I think it's a, she's a prisoner, uh, it's a guard making a prisoner pick up mushrooms yeah and on one of the rocks there's a scorpion and um he says i don't want to i wrote it down right here um i think it's, i can't continue this will kill me yeah and then the guard completely ignores him and then at the end of the movie uh Hiromi has a second dream where she comes across a very large rusted weathered refrigerator and inside of it she finds uh, a group of frozen dogs and she says I reached out and grabbed the first one that was closest to me and held it in my arms. And as it was thawing, its tail started wagging and it started barking loudly in joy. And I found that to be just so, so pivotal in terms of her character growth. And I think it was mentioned earlier, um, whether or not, I think Ashley mentioned it where, um, uh, you were asking, uh, if at the end of it, do you feel like she's become her own self? Mm-hmm. And I feel like that dream kind of ties into that. And what do you think about that? I think that definitely, like, definitely plays, like, a role in it. And I tip- I really enjoyed the ending sequence because I felt like it was, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick myself up even after, like, what others might seem as, like, a failure or, like, a failure to me and just, like, keep moving forward and just, like, no matter what, I just have to, like, keep going mm-hmm. because, like, there's, like, no other way. So, yeah, that's kind of like what I saw. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of closing thoughts, uh, I do want to mention even that bathroom scene after her interaction with Captain EO after he leaves. And then you see the the lights changed colors to red. And I thought, wow, man, that was such a beautiful shot. Um, Because most of the film is shot very naturalistic. And you don't really get... Um, like the, the scene doesn't really change colors like that. <laughs> so you can tell like they really like hit that scene like the way they wanted to. Um, they wanted that to be very distinct from anything else that they were filming before. Um, yeah, I needed to bring that scene up because that was such a horrific and jarring scene. Like I felt very scared for her. Um, the point of view shot uh from her perspective was very terrifying um yeah i was just thinking the worst and it was just a man i was i don't know like it made me made my heart like race so hard and i'm like man the worst could happen right now and i don't know if patrick is trying to show me this movie so like the the climax was gonna be this crazy like ending and i'm just glad that like she was okay I want to touch on the juxtaposition of that because that's I think the lights go red because mm-hmm. like the bath thing's filled up enough for like the jacuzzis kick in and it's like mm-hmm. oh it's party time in the love hotel 
bathroom right. and it's just this horrible scene, this horrible image and we sit on it for like five seconds and then like just, yeah, the hard red light goes on and you see the jacuzzis kick up and mm -hmm. it's, it stays there another 10 seconds and you just feel miserable. Yeah. I think the, uh, the, the next scene of, or not a scene, but like the, the next clip after that, that follows it, like, it's just like crossfaded, like blurred of like people passing like through Tokyo and stuff. And I'm like, I feel like that just encapsulates, like, that's how you feel after something traumatic. Like you can't like see straight, can't think straight. Like that's mm -hmm. what your mind looks like. Just like all fuzzy and. Yeah, I think it just encapsulated, like, the feeling of something traumatic happening to you. Yeah, that's where the returning the phone is a bit of the saving race. Where she's yeah. just wandering aimlessly, saying, like, oh, what the hell's left to do with my life? And are you sure there wasn't something? I'm like, no. And then, oh, yeah, the phone. And then she goes there. Oh, thank you, the cat lived, the kitten lived. Mm -hmm. Also, you know, someone loves you out there, and you deserve to be loved. You shouldn't feel second thoughts about that. It's just, the film does a little clean little saving grace to not make it completely miserable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and to piggyback off of what Ashley said earlier, I like how the, the point of view shots or like even the camera itself feels like a fifth character. Like we're there mm -hmm. with them or like when they're, uh, sitting at a table and, and, um, one of the girls, she spat out like her beverage and it spat like on the camera. I'm just like, her <laughs> is sitting right next to her. So, like, <laughs> does she not get a whiff of that? Or is this, like, right on the cat? Like, I don't know. There's, like, an invisible person there, like, getting some of that drink all over themselves. It's just, I thought it was kind of funny. Like, it was a bit eccentric. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, with that being said, um, yeah, I appreciate you, Ashley, coming here. It was really fun to have you on this episode today. Thank you guys for having me. I'm, like, really excited to be here. Sorry, I'm, like, weird. <laughs> no, I'm definitely going to have you back on with, like, your own pick. Yep. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yes, you should return and, you know, pick your own movie. And, yeah, I'm glad that you picked us to have your debut podcast. Thank episode. you so much. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, with that being said, uh, thank you for tuning in to our uh, it's the 22nd episode. Uh, and yeah, this is love and pop and yeah. Follow us on Instagram and email us at leafilmpodcast.gmail.com. Like tell us how we did. What do you think of our new production? Like, what do you think of our new sound? And yeah. And everyone shout out Ashley. Thank you for coming again. Thank you. <laughs>